Hey, this is David Hayter. You may know me as the screenwriter of films like X-Men, X-Men 2, and Watchmen, but you probably know me best as the voice of Solid Snake from Metal Gear Solid. And you're listening to Hawaii's number one podcast, the Casanova Podcast. Kept you waiting, huh? Right, and welcome everyone to another episode of Hawaii's number one podcast and the number one podcast in the Pacific, the Casanova Podcast. I'm your host, Mikhail Casanova, and I've got the true honor and privilege of having one, the only Gerardo Delgado on the show from NVIDIA, the senior product manager. How's it going, man? <laughs> Very good, man. How are you doing? I'm good. It's just, just I'm, I'm nervous. It's a very, very busy week. Everything's dropping this week. Everything's tech and gaming related is super, yeah, super high pace right now. <laughs> October wasn't enough. We're going for an extra one. I know, right? <laughs> so yeah, man. Um, go ahead and uh, tell people, uh, in- introduce yourself, and and tell people where they can find you, and then we'll sure we'll jump right into it. So um, I'm Gerardo Delgado. I'm a senior product manager at Nvidia. And I cover uh, broadcasting and uh, content mm-hmm. creators. So I, I work on products that will help the content creative uh, creation industry. You guys can find me on Twitter at uh, Ger Delgado, G-E-R Delgado. Um, very, very active there, answering questions for broadcast, uh, anything to do with studio products from NVIDIA. So happy to help. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll leave links to everything down in the description below the podcast. So you guys will be able to find them there. And uh, yeah, man, this is uh, I'm excited to have you on the show. Like we we actually uh, for the audience, if you you know, you guys, you're not going to know this, but we actually we talked uh, about a week ago and uh, that whole talk that we had actually could have been a podcast itself. We were talking about a lot of things like uh, as far as like the software that we're using right now, which we're both using, which is NVIDIA Broadcast, which is absolutely phenomenal software, which is something we're going to be diving into on this episode because, you know, being able to get this depth of field, the background blur, being able to, we've got a lot of noise on both of our ends going on right now and being able to use NVIDIA Broadcast to hone in on our voice so you can't hear anything like incredibly loud air conditioner right here that i can't help but hear but you guys can't hear it so this software is just truly phenomenal for for podcasting for streaming just content creation around the board like this software is just absolutely phenomenal (laughs) thank you yeah so so what went into um if you don't mind my asking like the 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 idea of creating this level of software for streamers and content creators because there's really not a lot or if anything really that's doing what this is doing and it's very low impact on your computer resources so when when i came on board i started at nvidia around three years ago as an intern (laughs) and when when i took on broadcast 
the thinking was to try to simplify the journey from starting to broadcast to becoming a, a an avid broadcaster, right? I don't need to, people to become professional. I need people to be able to do their hobby as they want to do it, mm -hmm. even if it's for money or not. Um, a lot of that was just simplifying the whole journey, right? When someone used to try to stream before, the impact on your system was massive. So pe people were into dual uh, systems. The, um, they, they were mm -hmm. buying crazy CPUs that costed, you know, like $2,000. So th the first phase of the project was to try to accelerate all of that, simplify it, make it simple. And that's uh, mm -hmm. what you guys may have seen from, from NVIDIA, from our new GPUs, the, the, the 20 series, the brand new encoder that uh, helped with performance, but helped especially with quality. Then the second phase mm -hmm. to that is uh, the encoder is great, but people use their apps. They use OBS, they use Streamlabs, they use XSplit, right? So we mm -hmm. needed to make sure that the apps would run great with it and that they would just work out of the box. It didn't make sense that you had to go into the settings and toggle a gazillion settings. So the phase was about improving all of the apps, making sure that if you had an NVIDIA GPU, it would work out of the box. And from there, we want to do the third phase, which is how can we actually improve the level of content creation? Now, that was a bit trickier because there was a lot of companies doing many interesting things. So we mm -hmm. did some research and one of the things we noticed is that one of the natural barriers we were going to encounter in broadcasting was the use of AI. Because people are individual streamers, not they don't have mm -hmm. a broadcast studio with them, or at least they don't have a full equipped and staffed studio with them, right? That means that mm -hmm. there is a lot of stuff that you need to do yourself with your stream deck or with whatever tool you use. You need to figure out your own lighting. You need to figure out your own audio. AI can help with a lot of that, but a lot of companies in streaming are smaller companies. They may not have the mm -hmm. reach to get the data set they need. They may not have data scientists, you know, you name it. So the idea came around of, you know, we, we can help with that. We could build the AI networks that power those technologies and give them mm -hmm. for free to app developers. Then app developers can build it as features into their apps and pass it on to end users and basically try to move the ecosystem forward. And I'm, I'm in a weird spot at NVIDIA where I can actually do all of this for free because we get our money through GPUs and any yeah. software that enhances the experience, we, we kind of justify it by saying, well, more people will like the GPU and buy it. So it's, mm -hmm. it allowed me to work with, with people like OBS, like XSplit, and you know, we, we got into all this craziness of the broadcast engine and, and the NVIDIA broadcast app, which I'm I'm really passionate about. Awesome, awesome. And yeah, it's um uh, you know, I've been using it for the last month and um between streaming and podcasting, it's just been an absolute godsend. Like one of the the biggest, especially when it comes to pod podcasting, is for me, I usually have to turn off my air conditioner. So like I'm doing interviews for like two, three hours or, or however long. And many of them, like I start, typically I start podcasting and recording from like 5 a.m. until about 5 p.m. So within that 12 hour block of time, I'm constantly going, you know, talking with different guests and not having the AC on plus living in Hawaii where it's only three types of temperatures, hot, hot, and hotter. <laughs> it's kind of brutal. <laughs> but now like I can turn on, you know, the noise removal. I can have my air conditioner going on and I'm still sounding clear and crisp as if there's nothing but me in a curated room. And it's just this type of functionality. Like I've been telling so many of my friends that are podcasters and streamers like because the, they all have like 20 series cars and a few of them have 30 series cars and i'm like 
use this software. It is such a godsend. It is not impactful, like on your computer, to the extent of third-party apps and whatnot would be. And it just gets the job done. And it's just amazing just seeing how many of my friends are actually using it that are, you know, content creators and podcasters. But, you know, I'm just, I'm grateful that you guys made it because you've actually made my job because this is my full-time job and you guys have made it so much better with this software. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that was the purpose. In fact, um, some, some people have heard about RTX Voice, which was our prior version of NVIDIA Broadcast. And I, mm-hmm. it's actually an interesting story. RTX Voice was a beta, right? It was a very early beta. You know, you know how people mm-hmm. now call everything they call it early access, right? Fortnite is in yeah. early access and everything. Um, yeah. The this was a true early access. It was like an alpha, right? Half of the interface mm-hmm. wasn't working properly, so we had to take options out. Um, most of the optimizations that you can see in NVIDIA broadcast were not ready in RTX Voice, but. Mm-hmm. It's something that we felt could help, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. We, we released this at the beginning of April. Uh, mm-hmm. Everyone was going nuts there. You know, you had uh, you had people working at home with children. You had, um, for example, one common request that we were getting were mothers that their kids were coming to bug them. And so they were saying, Can, you need to do something to help me. Um, we had uh, artists that were trying to record at home, but, you know, they, they couldn't do anything from singing to whatever. So... Mm-hmm. I felt very strongly that we had to accelerate and, and release it as soon as it was ready. We actually had a lot of internal pushback because they felt, you know, what's going to happen with the brand, uh, the app is not ready, but it got very good reviews and, and people were mm-hmm. very excited to use it. And one thing we've noticed now is with NVIDIA Broadcast, a lot of people switch from RTX Voice to Broadcast and they're really liking the camera features. And if you notice, we released it in a similar manner. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the camera features are still in beta. It's a bit earlier than we would normally release them. Uh, the the performance, for example, for it, we want them to be blazing fast, and they're fast right now, but they can be improved. And and yeah. so it's it's one thing that I'm very happy that I've been allowed to do, which is to give stuff earlier to the community, let them play with it. I get the feedback, mm-hmm. and people have been giving us a ton of feedback, and from that feedback we can iterate, right? Yeah. Uh, with for example, what we did with RTX Voice is we opened up a website in case people wanted to donate their audio. Because we don't mm-hmm. collect any audio, your conversations are all private, and uh, we set up a forum for people to complain to put bugs. Um, mm-hmm. If I back then in April, most of my QA teams were locked out of the office, so if I had to release this product, it may have been until next year when I could have released it. But mm-hmm. thanks to the community, I was able to capture all of the bugs. We got a ton of reports. They actually, the community sent us bugs and solutions, so they actually sent hot fixes themselves. <laughs> And they, they really accelerated the development of, of the solution then. And the same thing with, with audio quality. We, you, know, you try to make the networks as diverse and resilient as possible. But mm-hmm. there was one thing we didn't anticipate, which is people with a very high-pitched voice that scream. And mm-hmm. it doesn't fail when they talk. It only fails when they scream. So that's, that's something that until you put it you know, in a broader data set, you don't really realize where you're failing. And... Mm-hmm. People were actually very, very collaborative. They sent us voice recordings of of their voice so that we could train on them. And the next version of the of the product, the current one that you're using, for example, has a lot of improvements for those noise profiles. And we're still doing the same right with the community. Awesome, awesome. And honestly, it's like with that, like working with the community, like getting the feedback, and you know, 
fixing things here and there based off of the data that you've gathered. Like, how has that process been? Has it been fun? Has it been frustrating? Has it been like a mix of the two? Like, how has that experience been? It's it's difficult. Um, the best thing you can have is an angry customer. When when what mm-hmm. I mean by angry is that tends to be a very motivated customer. So mm-hmm. while some people internally, you know, when they start seeing the feedback, they they you know, I've had a lot of engineers working for many hours to build this thing, and then they can get a bit motivated. I tell them it's mm-hmm. actually the opposite. These are people that love your product that need to use it in their workflow because you built exactly what they need, but they need something fixed. So you need to do a bit of, of expectation management with engineering and kind of make sure that the mm-hmm. message lands correctly. Then um, uh, the big challenge is many times people send you feedback thinking they know everything about the product and they may not really be understanding what's happening. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of effort done in cleaning stuff and making sure that you detect the real problem. Um, and then actually my my challenge right now is, is the third part of it, which is asking the community feedback for things that you need. So, so they will send you a lot of feedback, but then you try a solution and you need someone to test it. That part mm-hmm. is a bit trickier because because I don't have the reach on Twitter yet to do that. But I, I have to say a nice. lot of, of my <laughs> Twitter followers have been very helpful. They've been yeah. super collaborative and we've been able to validate a lot of stuff with them. Okay, okay. But and, and I, I will, that's a false thing. I will admit uh, something. <laughs> it, it is very scary. Like opening everything up and, you know, Showing people mm-hmm. your back door and, and telling them, look, this is what I'm doing. A lot of mm-hmm. people at NVIDIA were a bit uncomfortable with it at the beginning <laughs> until they saw it working. Well, I will say this, sir. You do have reach. You do have the reach <laughs> on your social media. I don't know what you're talking about. Disregard that, people. He does. <laughs> but, you know, I can understand that. I can understand, like, the, you know, like you said, like, opening the back door and letting people look at that because th- that that's that's still new. You know, that's a, a new thing to, uh, especially as an organization, to get comfortable with that. You know, that that requires, I would say, like a level of trust between you and your 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 consumers as well. You know, so hats off to you guys for taking that risk. <laughs> and as far as like um, the future of like the direction with this, this software, with NVIDIA Broadcast, and what, where do you see it going within you know, hypothetically in like a year or so, like, do you see it being like the norm for content creators, streamers and such? So I see two things. One is people getting into live streaming need easy solutions. And that's the philosophy, for example, behind our shadow play in GeForce experience, something simple Mm -hmm. that will allow you to just record your screen. If you want something more advanced, you have likes of OBS, Streamlabs, or XSplit, and we help all of them. We collaborate with all of them, and we enhance their solution. We want you, the creator, to be well-serviced, right? NVIDIA Broadcast to me is similar. I want a simple solution that anyone can just use off the box if you don't need anything complicated. But my wish is that in this coming year, we can help uh, other applications integrate these features into the application for advanced creators to be able to do advanced effects. So for example, right now, XSplit has updated Broadcaster to include the noise mm-hmm. removal filter. So you can filter each of your audio channels independently. Or um, uh, Shimer, a popular developer, he does a very popular plugin for OBS stream effects. Shimer released VoiceFX. VoiceFX is a VST3 filter. 
These are filters mm -hmm. that work with a bunch of applications. So for example, they work with Adobe Premiere or Adobe Audition. Mm -hmm. So for a editor, you can just open up Premiere and you can denoise a track that, you know, imagine you, you brought someone on the show that had a lot of background noise, you can denoise them in post. That's kind of my wish that we go beyond just the NVIDIA Broadcast App appliance, let's say, which works great for most users, but we can mm -hmm. actually expand it so people can do advanced use cases. And I always tell the internal team, I don't care so much about the use cases I can predict. What I really want to see is the ones I cannot even think of. Those are the ones that get me excited. I want to see what people build with it. Okay. Yeah, because um, I would say, like, between my wife and I, like, uh, as I told you last week, uh, we're both full-time content creators, and she uses she uses XSplit. I also use XSplit as well, but I, I like the simplicity of setting and forgetting in OBS, but she uses XSplit, I use OBS, and with a lot of her streaming, content creating, like, when she found that feature, when she did the update for XSplit, being able to just go in the tab and manually adjust everything and, you know, turning on the noise filter. She was like, this is just, this is everything I needed. And it's, it's everything because it's like for her, when she does her YouTube videos or she does her product promotions, like for her various partnerships, she uses XSplit for everything. So she's able to take professional photos and whatnot using XSplit running and video broadcast software to, Blur out the background because a lot of people are like, "Oh, are you using a DSLR, a DSLR camera?" And she's like, "No, I go between using Apple Cam and I use my webcam, and they can't tell because that depth of field it just looks so good." And then when she does her podcast, like people are wondering, like, "Are you using like a Shure SM7B or something like super high end?" Because she's so clear, you can't hear anything else. She's like, "No, I'm using this." So it's like the word of mouth how great the software is and, and and going back to what you were saying about people using it beyond you know just the bare minimum it's really i, I could see it flourishing within a year actually six months to a year i could see it flourishing on a broad spectrum yeah well you should see the number of users we have now it's been growing very quickly already <laughs> but no like i i just really think it's uh it's well actually if you don't mind on the, what's, what's the ballpark figure for the number of users? Uh, I, I know downloads because I'm not tracking anyone, right? So I can only see who hit download on our page, which is, you never know if that's full users, but I think we're mm -hmm. getting close or, or surpassing 2 million now, um, which, wow. you know, for a an AI product that is working mainly on, on TensorCores, so mainly it's RTX users, I'm kind of glad. That's That's amazing. Wow. Okay, so then six months to a year from now, we're looking at 30, 40, 50 million users now. I see it. I, can see it I wish. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just say something. The more people that download this shit and use it, the more budget I get for engineering, the more features we can add. So, you know, <laughs> wink, wink, download this thing. <laughs> Links in the description. Go ahead and download it now. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> So um, let's talk about you, man. Like, okay, so you started off as an intern, but how did you get into uh, working in this field? Like, let's tell us about you. Like, this, let's walk uh, through this journey. Sure. You can start anywhere um, you want to. Once upon a time. Um, okay. Let's see. <laughs> uh, 
I've always I've always really liked technology, right? Like like a lot mm-hmm. of kids, especially here in in the Bay Area. Um, mm-hmm. When I was 15, I started creating websites, and I actually I hosted for 10 years one of Spain's biggest uh, downloads page. So it was howtodownload.com, and it was wow. it wasn't piracy. It was a page mm-hmm. uh, tailored to it explained the technology of peer to peer technology, and it told people how to download things safely, how to not get viruses, not get fakes, and making sure that the that the ecosystem was secure for everyone. It had mm-hmm. one major flaw. It was designed for beginners. The more people you taught, the less the less customers you had. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the the website died by success. <laughs> so it educated so many people <laughs> that at one point no one needed it. But it, we had a couple of highs. I remember 2007, 2008. I, mm-hmm. I was hitting 20,000 unique users a day. We we had tons of traffic. I got invited wow. to, to participate in conferences, etc. So uh, it was really exciting. Um, however, uh, then the, the sad reality of, of the 2008 crisis hit, uh, yeah. and I was finishing my degree. I'm, I'm a lawyer by training, so I, mm-hmm. I had to then get a job, and, and I basically had to go and get a, a, a real job, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a traditional lawyer, so I, I ended up working for a tech company for Cisco. And mm-hmm. at Cisco, I did negotiations. So I actually specialized in international negotiations of technology and my first technology was actually military and defense so that was a weird area to go in first uh, but wow. then i i switched to to looking at deals for iot for internet of things technologies and soon my bosses realized i was really good at, at getting people excited about technology about mm-hmm. i was good about initiating the projects selling the projects to customers i wasn't that good as a, of a lawyer so they they started using me to do business development. And so at one point I figured out if you really want to just help expand uh, technology in the world, you know, bring technology to people and, and help with real uh, real use cases, you better, mm-hmm. you're better off going to Silicon Valley and helping from the core, right? So I, I took a degree, I, I took a loan in Spain, um, took my little savings from Spain, which I thought were decent in Spain. They're nothing when you come to the US, to the Bay Area, this thing is expensive. And uh, so I, I had to get a loan and everything. And I still remember on my second year in the masters when I mm-hmm. spent my last dollar, my very last dollar. And and then you know the loan kicked in, so I I started using from the loan. But I remember <laughs> that feeling of oh my god, I ran out of money. Um, and um, what what happened is during the the masters, I, I did an MBA. During the MBA, mm-hmm. they ask you to explore. They they promote that you explore new areas. I was sure I was going to go back to Cisco. I had a really good offer to go back there. But we did a meeting where I, I met my my now manager at NVIDIA. And mm-hmm. he covered how NVIDIA was doing all this cool stuff in gaming. And I'm 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 a fanatic of gaming. I cannot tell you the hours I spent in World of Warcraft. I, my my guild in World of Warcraft in, in WoW Vanilla, in the first version of WoW, was top mm-hmm. seven worldwide at one point. Like We rated the shit out of Vanilla. <laughs> I, I was doing, I mean, easily when we when we were really when we, when we were top twenty worldwide, we were doing eighteen hours a day for months, like it was nuts. Uh, and so I was really interested in that section of Nvidia. But then he mm-hmm. went on to explain how Nvidia was was at the forefront of the next revolution in gaming, moving gaming to the cloud with GeForce Now, mm-hmm. and and that that blew my mind. I was like, wow, I didn't know this was possible. 
I had seen prior services like that, like OnLife and stuff, and none of them had worked. So it was crazy that NVIDIA was doing it. Then he went on to explain self-driving cars. And I was like, wait a minute, I really like self-driving cars. And, and he closed by explaining AI. And it's like, these companies nuts. They're doing everything I like. So <laughs> I, I ended up taking an internship at NVIDIA that summer and, and not going back to Cisco. And which, by the way, the best pitch I ever did when I was looking for a job, there is all of these MBAs doing corporate talk with my boss, with my the manager there, but who's now my boss. Like, you know, this is my resume. This is where I went to. And I got into the conversation and said, what do you guys play? I play a lot of World of Warcraft. And that was my pitch. And that's how I got in. <laughs> they were like, oh, awesome. We play World of Warcraft. And so they invited me over. We got chatting and that's how it started. Um, but once I did the summer, I was hooked. I I love being a product man. I love being able to to think through problems. I especially like having small problems, like problems no one's mm-hmm. looking at. I, my, my first problem was esports. What can NVIDIA do with esports? And my research there is actually what led to a lot of the products that we're building now. So I'm, I'm really glad, for example, of having started doing the research in that area. Then I went into broadcast and that has spun out all of these and I kind of like those fields where they are nascent, you know, they're small, they're new, and you can really come and help. And um, the sad part is that I turned down a very very lucrative offer at Cisco, so my wife wasn't very happy when I did that. But uh, I, you know, I I love Cisco, it's a great company, but I've been so much happier since working in gaming and in broadcasting and now in content creation. Let's uh, let's talk about NVIDIA Studio. Like, uh, tell us more about that. Uh, Sure. So, uh, recently, uh, when was this? 2018? No, 2019. Mm-hmm. In 2019, we announced NVIDIA Studio, which is mm-hmm. a platform for creators. It's basically all we do for creators. And mm-hmm. the purpose of NVIDIA Studio is to give content creators great machines uh, to, to work on, basically something that will accelerate your content creation. What people mm-hmm. don't know is that we've actually been doing this for a very long time. Out of the last 14 years, every movie that won an Oscar was developed on an NVIDIA GPU. So it's it's an area that we have a lot of expertise in. The the challenge or the problem is that a lot of that expertise was being sold under Quadro, which are professional mm-hmm. enterprise grade grade um, uh, GPUs. Mm-hmm. One of the things we noticed a while back was that a lot of people were buying our GPUs and they were not running games on them, or or they were running a lot of other stuff other than games. Mm-hmm. And so that got us thinking, and and we started exploring the area, and we noticed. Uh, the trend of content creators uh, a while back, you know, as early as 2014, 2015, we were looking into these things. And we we wanted to make sure that we would service it correctly. Mm-hmm. We got to the point where we think that people that go to a Best Buy to buy a new laptop, actually, a lot of them don't want to buy the laptop for office work or for con- uh, for gaming, which is what, what you can do right now in Best Buy, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, Many of them will say, look, what are you going to do? I'm going to do a bit of gaming. I'm going to do video editing. And I want to learn 3D. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing for you if you ask for that. They either send you to the Ultra Portables, the Ultrabooks, or they send you to the gaming section. Yeah. And you know, if it's great if you want a game, but to buy a laptop that has a lot of flashing RGB lights when you actually just want to do video editing, it's kind of weird. In fact, yeah. it's the wrong product for you because you need something non-distracting and you have the rainbow going back and forth and changing the way that you see color on the screen. Yeah. Or even worse, what could happen is someone could tell you get a MacBook, which nothing against the MacBooks, but usually the MacBook they offer you in Best Buy doesn't even have a GPU. Yeah. So 
they're actually very, very slow for video editing. So yeah. NVIDIA Studio was an attempt to try to productize all of that into a package that people could just buy it mm -hmm. to make it simple. And uh, that's, a, that's a simplification. That's one of the, the intents. The other one was to help content creators that just have an NVIDIA GPU as well. So on the product side, what we did is we, we defined a number of specs. We said, this is what a good creative laptop would be like. And this is what it needs to have from NVIDIA. And now we, we even did a batch. So the batch can be found on the computers. You can search NVIDIA Studio laptops or NVIDIA Studio desktops. You'll see the websites come up. You'll see, you know, we have them from HP, from Dell, all the major OEMs. And they have systems that were specifically designed for creators with specific specs for creators and that were tested mm -hmm. by us and by the OEM for creators. So sure, you, you, I mean, a gaming laptop is plenty powerful. What the creative laptops are going to bring you is, for example, the display. The display is going to be a display that's factory calibrated, a display that has the right uh, color gamut. It's going to show you the right colors. And, mm -hmm. and basically, it's a display where you're going to be able to check correctly that the content is going to be seen right. Okay, so you want to be to have one of those screens so that you're making sure that what you're seeing is the true way that it's going to be perceived by others. Then mm -hmm. on the desktop side, you know, we, we have other things that are like we have a lot of constraints for noise on desktops because you know some of the gaming desktops can get very loud. Mm -hmm. One thing that we noticed a lot of gamers have headsets. So noise is not that important for them. They have music or the game blasting on their ears. A creator may not be doing that and they are going to be creating for hours. So they need a, a nice environment, if possible, a quiet environment to work in, right? So these products are really, really tested and optimized for them. But then what we do in general for creators, I'm, I'm really passionate about that too. We have mm -hmm. first the studio driver. So many people may have seen that now we have a game-ready driver and a studio driver. So why? Game-ready drivers are drivers that are released the day a new driver comes out. Uh, sorry, a new, a new they're released the day a new game comes out. They're optimized mm -hmm. for that game. That's fantastic. But sometimes there are a lot of games coming out. Like, you know, this month we have a lot of launches. What mm -hmm. happens? You need to do a lot of game really uh, driver releases. As a creator, you don't want to change your driver every week. You want a bit of stability to make sure that your workflow doesn't get disrupted. Mm -hmm. You also want a driver that has been heavily tested on your programs. And that's what the studio drivers do. They are updated less often. They are updated at the same time as a big update of the main applications gets, gets rolled mm -hmm. out. Like an Adobe application gets updated, a Photoshop or a Premiere. That's when mm -hmm. we do the driver update. And that driver is heavily tested on all those applications. Why? Because if we have a bug on the game-ready driver, it's bad. But you know, if gamers cannot play for six hours, it's not the end of the world. If mm -hmm. I have the creative industry on NVIDIA not working for six hours, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of people whose livelihoods are affected. Mm -hmm. And so I, I cannot risk that. That's why the studio driver gives them that stability that they need. So, so that's one. The second one is, at the end of the day, creators work with their workflow, right? Mm -hmm. You are using OBS for your streams, or you're using... Do you use Audacity or Audition for your podcast? How do you edit them? Uh, I edit them through Audacity. Audacity, for example, right? Mm -hmm. What do you need to run as fast as it can? You need Audacity to run fast. You don't care that mm -hmm. much that this is fast if Audacity doesn't run well. So a lot of stuff that we do is work with ISVs, with software providers, to make sure that their software runs great on our GPUs. And if possible, we help them accelerate it on our GPUs. So mm -hmm. for example, 
Adobe just announced back in April that Adobe Premiere can now encode on NVIDIA encoders on the GPU. Mm -hmm. That's a 4x acceleration. So, you know, if you're doing a podcast like this one, you know, a two-hour podcast, if we recorded it at 4K, encoding this thing on X264 would take easily 12 to 14 hours, right? Yeah. So basically, it's imagine taking that and you divide it by four. You go from processes that you were doing overnight, you know, you were just leaving work and leaving it all the night encoding, to a process where you can actually say, I quit at five, I leave it encoding, by dinner I can check it and make sure that it came out correctly. Um, if you're And then if you're managing the typical YouTube video, which is what, a 20 minute 4K video, basically you go from a four to six hours encode, which again, which is something that you will leave overnight, to, uh, you know, if you bring it down to one hour, then you can just go around, you know, have dinner in one hour, you can check it. So mm -hmm. it's it's a big needle mover for a lot of people. So that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to do with Studio. It's, we we basically have a bunch of PMs just looking at creatives and creative workflows understanding what their pain points are and helping them uh, solve those working with those companies, right? So we said the driver, the software optimization, and then the third leg to studio is our own software that we release to help creators, like NVIDIA Broadcast. NVIDIA Broadcast mm -hmm. is one, um, and we have a couple more coming out uh, soon that are very exciting. One is Omniverse, which is a, um, it's hard to explain Omniverse. It's a 3D engine that can take inputs from any program. So it's, it's a weird concept is by using universal files but with the 3ds mm -hmm. extension the one made by pixar you can actually have a team that you know someone working on photoshop someone working on premiere you can have pe people working on different elements combine mm -hmm. everything in omniverse so it's trying to allow remote teams to work together at the same time and the render is path trace accelerated it can do real-time ray tracing Wow. So it's like trying to allow creators to do the next generation of creating all together. It's still in development, so you guys will hear more about this. But that's this is the universe of Studio. It's great laptops and desktops that have been validated and tested that you can just go and buy. And all of these optimizations that if you want to get access to them, just get the Studio driver, update your apps, and you're good to go. Wow. Okay. So more information for that will be in the description below. And we're I'm gonna have to have you back on the show to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> like if, if you're interested, I would love to I would I would love to have that happen. Um because I, I feel like there's so much to dive into with this. Which yeah, would effectively yeah, make this another two hour show. <laughs> no, no, but more than happy to actually a good friend of mine does the app acceleration. So I'm sure that he'll also be happy to join us if you want. And he can yeah. talk all of that what he does with he he helped Adobe with all the integrations and and he has a bunch of stuff coming, which I'm sure that he'll like to talk about some of it. So that that could be fun. If we were taught like to dive into like uh the benefits of enjoying what you do for a living well, very few people actually have that opportunity to to do what they love for a living and actually be able to make a living from it so like the fact that you're able to do that dude that's 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 inspiring it really is yeah no it, it's a privilege i'm i'm very much aware of it um one of the things i i do for example at at the school i went to and but but in general, I do a lot of motivational talks to students. Um, I oh. was I was one week away from going back to Cisco, like mm -hmm. like 
very clearly going back to Cisco. I I don't know, call it the loans, call it the whatever it was, but the the fear sinked in, and I was I was sure I was just gonna go back, and the leap wasn't easy. And mm-hmm. one of the things I did while I was at school is help a lot of people explore their passions. I, I always tell the story. I, a friend of mine, uh, Rodrigo, he's from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Rodrigo, he came from banking and and he wanted to do marketing. That was his passion when he came to the masters. And um, he did marketing in the summer and hated the guts out of it. He said, this thing is horrible. He, he, he felt he was like lying to people to buy things they didn't need. Mm-hmm. And he kind of had like, you know, he had a moment where he said, what have I done with my life? I spent all of this money to do a master's to do something I hate. And I helped him kind of think through it and what he wanted to do. And a big drive for him was that he really wanted to help people. He thought marketing didn't realize it didn't help them. So mm-hmm. because of a personal situation, driving was a concern for him. And so we started exploring self-driving and he said, I'm never going to find a job in self-driving. I'm a guy that comes from finance and I've done a marketing internship who's going to hire me for self-driving. So I told him, you, you never know how powerful you are until you try. So let's just see what yeah. you have available. And, and I asked him, what do you have? And, and after thinking, he just said, I have time. I have nine months of these masters. The, the second year in an MBA is very easy. So you have time. And I said, all right, we're going to do something then. You're going to set up the best conference in the world for self-driving cars, or at least for, for a collegiate self-driving cars conference. And mm-hmm. he was like, you're nuts. This is never going to happen. And I said, well, let's try and see who we know. And through contacts, he managed to get into a room, the VP of self-driving, of Uber, Lyft, Google. He got the partners of the two of the three top consulting firms that were covering self-driving to come. He got the the leader of transportation for the municipality of Berkeley and San Francisco to come and a bunch of other people. And and by the way, one thing that was cool, I think he managed to get half of them were both uh, female and male. So that was cool as well. We we, we were also trying to show that it wasn't a a male-dominated industry. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And so... Like you may ask, sure, he did the conference. What's the point? A lot of people interacted with him. When it finished, a lot of people called him and said, what do you want to do after the, the master's? And he ended up working for Uber. So I, I, I try to tell it to people is you never know why you're going to get hired unless you try. The one thing that's universal and true is you need to know what your passion is and be vocal about it. And maybe it doesn't work, but the only chance of letting it work is being vocal about it and trying. And I'm not yeah. saying people need to do what Rodrigo did and give everything up and just focus on something. But at the very least, just be honest with yourself and mm-hmm. give yourself the freedom to talk about it with people. I I got into gaming. The, the, the real long path is in one chat during the MBA, uh, I, I was talking to the head of new product development at Google. And everyone was pitching because they wanted to be hired by Google. I should have pitched to be hired by Google. But instead, I... It was the first time I was honest with myself. And I said, you know what? I'd love to do gaming. That's That was my passion. I'd love to do something like this. And out of the blue, he says, do you know Major League Gaming, which was a, an esports organization back then. They organized a lot of Call of Duty tournaments and they broadcast them. Mm-hmm. He said, it was created by Pete. We went to school with Pete. We have beers with him every Tuesday. Do you want to meet him? And that led me on, on a crazy path where I ended up then meeting the NVIDIA guys and they knew some of the people I had met and everything. But uh, I guess I didn't tell it before. The, for me, for my personal journey of, of finding my passion, what made it was letting myself be, be honest with myself in that one chat. 
and that that started everything. I ended up meeting Team Liquid. I ended up meeting um, Kevin Chu, who's the the donor of of my school. He built our building. He mm-hmm. owns an Overwatch uh, team. So I ended up meeting with him, and he gave me a, a bunch of feedback on on career advice. It was about being honest with myself. So um, that's what I recommend to people. Just you don't have to do anything. Just don't lie to yourself. Man, it, it's really amazing because you think about it. It's like six degrees of separation because someone knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who will eventually come to know you. And it's just literally. Man, I, I, I would ask this, like, could you come speak at the schools here in Hawaii? Because a lot of folks here, a lot of the students would love to hear that. Um, oh, I've actually I'm had the opportunity to. to like I, I, I can talk to the schools because like I've had the opportunity within the last year that I've done I've gone into this full time to go and speak at each of the universities I hear University of Hawaii, Hawaii Pacific University and um Shamanai University and speak and tell you know, talk to the students about content creating and just entrepreneurship as a career and how you know, going beyond that, how just taking a chance on yourself because you never know. I never thought I would end up in this field. I never thought I'd ever have the opportunity to sit here and talk to you, senior product manager of NVIDIA. Like you never know until you try. And yeah. I, I think for me, um, you know, this is going a bit of into the background myself, but for me, I kind of attribute a lot of my current philosophy, which I, I feel like you and I have a lot in common that to working at the hospital that I used to work at, you know, I used to do uh, architecture and telephony and uh, Cisco routing and also going through, like I'm currently four years in remission from cancer. I got a couple months and I'm going to be fully cancer free and going through that, going through the chemo treatments and then coming out of treatments, going to work at the hospital and being around people that were terminally ill that always said, I wish I did this. I wish I had time to do this. I just swore to myself into my head, I'm going to do everything I can because I don't know. I don't know how much time I have left. I don't know if this is going to succeed or fail, but at least I'm going to give it my all. You know, I'm going to do this. Even if I've got to work extra or if I got to do this extra, I'm going to just pursue it because you never know. And when I was talking to the students uh, earlier this year, before we had the full lockdown, I've done personal speaking with them since I just tell them like, what is it you're passionate about? And a lot of them say they want to go into like, a lot of people don't realize this uh, here, but there's a lot of the youth that want to go into, you know, coding development, uh, video game design, uh, computer, you know, like into the tech field. But a lot of the culture here in Hawaii doesn't really support that. And a lot of the families here don't really it's not something they view as tangible. So it's like, you know, going to construction, go and do what's safe. But the kid, or I call them kids, I should say young adults, the students rather, I should call them students. They're more interested in going into tech, entertainment, doing this. And so I talked to them, I'm like, so what's stopping you from doing that? Oh, my family this, my family that. Well, how about if you're able to carve out some time to, research and develop a plan of how you can pursue this 
what are you passionate about? Oh, I'm a passionate about this, this, and this, and this. I want to do robotics. There's a lot of kids here like to do robotics, but families don't support it. So I'm like, look into it. What are you, you know, and pursue it. I had one that um, said they wanted to go and work for NASA, but their family said, oh, that's, you're never going to do that. And I'm like, okay, so what's keeping you from doing it? They're like, fear. So what if you remove that fear? Or if you look at that fear and be like, I see you there, but you're not going to keep me from doing it. They're like, okay, I can, I, I can do that. So, all right, let me know in a year. So this was August last year when I talked to that student. This year, they're like, I got an internship. <laughs> nice. And you must be very proud then of the advice you gave them. Yeah. Because it's, it's, you never know. You never know. You never know. So it's very powerful stuff. Um, I, one thing I'll say, though, one, a part of it is being comfortable with uncertainty. And, and, yes. and that takes time. And, and that's something my younger self wasn't capable of and I learned when I grew older. Mm -hmm. A second part of it is it's not about fe being fearless, I, or at least I don't think it's about being fearless. It's about mm -hmm. being realistic. You need to be yes. realistic with yourself, but you also need to be realistic with your chances. In, you know, you say Hawaiians want to be want to work in tech, Spaniards want to be soccer players, right? Um, it, it's a bit of sure. Follow your passions, but with some realism behind this. So mm -hmm. it's it's about it, it's hard, but it's about canceling the echo. Canceling yeah. the noise and trying to say, okay, what would it take? Can I try it? If I fail, what happens? When, when I tried to get into the MBA with my profile, it was really hard to achieve it. I was mm -hmm. on the older side. I came from law where most people getting into the MBA are consultants or or they, they come from, from finance, right? It was tricky for me to get into it. And and so and my, my peers in Spain were like, what the heck are you doing with your life? You're, you're studying six hours a day and you're working already until 11. I, I was barely sleeping. And um, I, I told, told them, it's, I think I have a shot. It's a 15 to 20% shot. And I want to take the shot. And I know there is a backup plan. You know, I, there's something I can do. That's mm -hmm. the realism part. The problem is younger, you don't see it. Um, well, uh, I, I'm going to keep telling stories and you just stop me. Um, one, one thing no, that happened No, no, you keep me, going. <laughs> But one thing that happened to me at, at Cisco was that I was super mm -hmm. happy with what I was doing, but I wanted to move into business development completely, right? I wanted to move out of legal. And it's funny because if I really ask myself, no one said no. I never asked. I had the certainty on my head that I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I had spoken mm -hmm. with two or three people and they hadn't given me good signals. And just because of bad signals, I had quit on it and I had said the only way I can get to the U.S. and do what I want to do is by, by doing a master's and getting out of Cisco. The moment I said I was leaving Cisco, one manager called me and said, why? Because you want to, I told him, because I want to go to the U.S., you can be transferred tomorrow if you want to. And another one offered me the job I wanted, the, the one, one job that justified the whole journey. And... It was like an eye-opener for me. It was like, I've been telling myself this for years. And I considered myself an educated adult. I, you know, I, 
I, I thought that I was, I had my eye and everything. And to realize there was such a gap between what I thought was possible and what was really possible was astonishing. And so now that's when my friends really lost it. When I told them I got the job I wanted, I said, oh, so you're not doing the, the master's anymore. I said, no, I'm going to do it. And they were like, why? I said, because my dreams were too small. Because I just realized that all of the barriers I thought were real were not real anymore. And all of my mm -hmm. dreams were built around barriers. Maybe we have to remove the barriers, go broke, and see what happens. And obviously, you know, not everyone has that luxury. Like, I was yeah. a lawyer. I had a decent job before. The reason why I could go broke, very honestly, is because a bank in Spain was willing to give me a loan. So I had some extra money by the end of the MBA. You know, I, I knew I had money to go back to Spain. And one thing that I did have, this is, this is what I was saying before about being realistic. I had a backup mm -hmm. plan. I had worked at a company for six years doing something. Once you do six years at a company doing something, you're going to get a job at another company doing something similar. It may yeah. not pay as well. It may not be as exciting, but you have a fallback. Right? That's your backup. So mm -hmm. sure, I mean, it would have sucked if you know if you go through all of the time investment and money investment and suffering of, of getting ready for three years to enter the MBA, then studying all of the MBA, and then you have to go back to doing what you were doing before. It would have sucked. But it was a backup. And so I accepted the backup. And I said, if everything happens, I'm willing to just go back to this. That that was the 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 light bulb moment, right? When I said, okay, we can try it. And it was, I never looked back. And honestly, I always keep thinking, I always fear that fear has settled back. I try mm -hmm. to always recheck myself. Every every six months to a year, I try to think of what assumptions I'm making about the world that are not true. Okay. Man, we dived in pretty deep right there. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but it is conversations like this that I think people need to hear, um, especially the generation coming up, because, you know, they have. I was having a, a conversation with my wife the other day about this, about the differences between like our generation. I think you and I are around the same age range and the generation that's coming up and how they have way more access to things than we ever had you know social media uh, i mean the internet I, I remember when the internet was new <laughs> revealing my age i remember when that was new i remember when having a computer in your house was not that common and i remember before we had the smartphone. I remember when we had the the pagers and stuff. Yes, I'm revealing my age. I'm in my thirties, people. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember the the idea of being able to research things and connect with people across the world. Like if you wanted to research something, you had to go to a library and you had to just go, you know, go through the index and look through what they had or see if you can schedule time, get on a computer to research what you could back then. Uh, Using Carta. I remember, yeah. Yeah. Instead of like, Wikipedia. Like that was a thing. Right? It was. And it's like, you look at the generation now, they have everything they need for information is at the tip, is at their fingertips. And it's just, you know, when I, when I, speak to the youth my thing is like 
what's stopping you? You've got every tool at your disposal. Well, you know, oh, and granted, I, I can, everyone had. Oh, go ahead. I can tell you what I think is stopping them. Um, reference models. It's just if you haven't met someone that has done the transition you want to do, mm-hmm. it's not even in your. It's not even in your realm of possibility, right? Yeah. I knew no one in Spain being a product manager. So, so until I got to the US, I didn't even know this thing existed. Um, mm-hmm. the, the biggest challenge to me, it's uh, I work so sometimes I get very, very politically activist the type, right? But one of the things that bothers me for for um, for societally societal justice is is that mm-hmm. it's just having the right role models. If you don't know anyone that has gone to NASA, you think NASA is nuts. You think it's impossible. If you don't know anyone that that has become a a professional streamer, then it becomes impossible. One of the things I had to learn to do, which was really hard for me, was to go on LinkedIn. Or, I mean, I guess for streaming, it wouldn't be on LinkedIn. But but I I (laughs) researched the people that were working at the jobs I kind of wanted. And I I cold called them. I sent them a message and I said, you know, very humbly, look, sir, you know, I admire the transitions you've done. You have the exact job that would be my dream job. I'm a student that's trying to make this transition. I would like to borrow 10 minutes of your time just so I can understand your journey. And obviously, I don't know, three out of, of, uh, sorry, one out of three would respond and maybe one out of five. But people do respond. People like talking about themselves. You know, that's the one thing I learned. People (laughs) love bragging. So through that is when I I started discovering roles. And to me, that's the biggest challenge, right, is when, when, like in you mentioned in in Hawaii it's construction or or I, I forgot the other role in Spain it's you can be a doctor an engineer or a lawyer you know one of the three you choose that's your freedom mm-hmm. um, yeah so it's it's great to to just give the the youth an example of those profiles because honestly I didn't get here because I was very brilliant I I had a passion for what I do and I worked hard but what I the transitions I did anyone could have done them. Right, it was mm-hmm. was an element of luck for sure, and an element of attempting it. Um, so I think what can help people to know that some people did this, or or how you transition right to being a, a professional podcaster. Like people, people don't know how people do those changes, and sometimes it's like you said, just taking a chance on yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very true. I um, I I look back on it now, like. You know, when I was senior systems analyst, there's the idea of what I'm doing now was just something I was like, yeah, I don't know anyone doing this. It like it, it was, you know, like that level of tangibility just was not there. And I think it was the I had the curiosity, so I just dabbled in it. And then, you know, I guess you could say the stars aligned or in my case, I kind of had a situation where I was like, all right. It's either I take the chance now or I forever wonder what if. And within this this last year of I tell you, doing this full time is I, I have way more stress <laughs> doing this full time than I have ever had with any other job because and, and I tell people because a lot especially folks out here, because the idea of content creating, streaming they don't, we don't really have people here. Do, like we have maybe one famous YouTuber out here, but like the idea of this as a career field is not something that people here think of. 
like I, I could assume like going to California or Washington, you, you, you know, people. Oh like, yeah. Oh, yeah LA. I know this person. I know. So yeah, you know, like you, you know, people, but like here, there really isn't anyone. And the one person that is here doesn't, you know, he's here and he's here in Hawaii one minute and gone the next. So it's, when people ask me like, oh, so what do you do? I'm like, all right, well, I'm on publicist. I'm my own manager. I have to get on myself to, hey, you need to get up at this time and make this content. You know, you need to do this. You need to reach out to people to be on your show. You need to reach out to companies to make sure you still have a working relationship to review products. You have to check in with your audience. You have to make sure you're making, you know, if you've got any, like, I've got several partnerships, so I have to meet my obligations with them and I have to edit, I have to do all this other stuff. And I, I tell people like, I wear a lot of hat and it's very stressful, but I'm happier doing this than I've ever been in my life doing anything else. And anyone can do it. Can everyone be successful? That's up to the individual and luck. But it's truly up to the individual. How hard are you willing to work? I, I know a lot of people out here have started podcasts like since I started mine and asked me, how do I get started? What do I need? What do I want to do this? And I'm like, what is your vision? What is it you want to do? What do you want to talk about? Or people want to do streaming. I, I had one person tell me today that I was an inspiration for them streaming. And I'm over here like thinking, me, what the hell did I do? I don't get goofy and from from because like streaming for me is my de-stressor but apparently i inspired people to do that and and you know i talk to them like what is your vision like what do you want to do and i tell people here don't and this is why i get in trouble i get i get a little, a little bit in trouble with this one <laughs> because i i tell people here as a content creator streamer podcast youtube or whatever do not let yourself to just where you are, just your region. Like I get a lot of flack from people here because they say I don't cater to people in Hawaii. And I'm like, you're right, because I cater to a global audience. I don't want to limit myself to just this area. I want people around the world to know, oh, who is Mikhail Casanova? Who is this guy? You know, because for me, my ultimate goal with what I'm doing, podcasting, streaming, all this is if someone else here or anywhere in the world wants to get into this, I want to be able to pay it forward and help them achieve that. And if I'm just limiting myself to here, I don't feel like I can achieve that. But I've been told that that's that I'm. I'm being selfish for doing that but i don't know maybe i am I no know. i mean <laughs> you have to follow your dream if that's what you set out to do you need to do that i i will say something my my little brother one of his best friends has started mm -hmm. a the most unlikely to succeed podcast in spain ever and they're doing really well uh, he he holds a podcast about the nba and in spain mm -hmm. we don't watch the nba because games are in the middle of our night so mm -hmm. it's not followed, and he's he has a, a terrible following. He's he's doing really well. He I was watching them today. They were they had like four k concurrent viewers in Twitch, 
is pretty wow. decent, you know, especially for a yeah. Spanish channel about a sport that's not played or watched in Spain. So it's it's similar to what you're saying is they wanted to do something and they didn't limit themselves to what was available. They they do it in English, you know, with with our lovely accent that we got the Spaniards. <laughs> but you know, people watch it and they create good content. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. I know you said earlier that uh you, you know, you you love gaming, so you you're you, you play WoW, which is interesting. I play FF14. And uh, I'm seeing a lot of WoW players come over to to, to 14. I'm wondering what's going on with WoW. What's going on? Why is that happening? Yeah. The the expansion development of Final Fantasy has been great. The mm-hmm. the story building that they've managed to do is amazing. And I know a lot of people that switched. I also think that a lot of the reasons why people were playing WoW at the beginning are no longer there. The sense of community that we had initially. Uh, got mm-hmm. transformed, or some may say is not there anymore directly. I think there's just an element of longevity. You know, it's been around for what 16 years now. Like yeah. there, there's also an element of people wanted to try something new. So it gets to the point where people want to switch, they want to do other things. And the thing about WoW is there isn't any other big MMO, I guess, other than FF14. So people end up trying other things, but if their MMO tickle comes back, then they need to go back to it. So that mm-hmm. that's a bit of of the circles. It's it's a pity because the original wow, the the feeling was very special. I, I, you cannot recreate it anymore. It's because no one understood. I mean, some people knew MMOs, but it was the first MMO experience for a lot of people. You did mm-hmm. a lot of stuff just because of the community or the call it role playing, right? Because I remember, I remember it was someone's birthday, and we would go and farm something for them, and we knew that they usually got back home at seven, and so we would prepare the gift. For when he got, someone wanted a, a horse, a, a mount. Back mm-hmm. then, they were very expensive. So we used 68 people, the whole guild, logged in three hours earlier to farm gold for him. And so we all farmed him the mount. And on his birthday, when he logged on, he had basically 68 messages on his mailbox with virtual money to buy a horse. That kind of silliness was, you know, it mattered to you back then because it was a new thing. It was special. No one gives a shit about it anymore, right? You log on to WoW, and and <laughs> that doesn't happen. I I don't know. I, I miss elements of it. I uh, back then, you know, we played by servers. So mm-hmm. your server was around ten thousand people. Maybe the very big servers were twenty thousand people of of people that play regularly. That's not too many people, and if you're active enough, you can actually get to know a good chunk of them. One one thing I did in in the original WoW is. I really like PvP, so so player versus player combat. Mm-hmm. And there was this battleground in the original WoW, which was Alterac Valley, which can still be found nowadays. So it's 40 versus 40. Back then, mm-hmm. you had to queue for two to three hours to get into one of those battles. They used to last mm-hmm. for days. A good eight, 10 hours of Alterac Valley was normal. And sometimes they would last for two days. And wow. one challenge we had in my server is the Horde there were very few players, so they could gear up uh, PvP gear easily. So they were better equipped than the average Alliance player. Mm-hmm. But I got really good at leading them. Really good at leading them. Like I had a full strategy studied, and I knew the ins and outs of that map. I knew how to beat any 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 match. So mm-hmm. when I got in, I started asking to lead. And at the beginning, no one knows you, right? It got to the point what, that the moment I got in, everyone just said, let him lead. And it was immediate. Now, to get 40 strangers 
to follow another stranger on the internet is normally hard. In WoW mm -hmm. nowadays, it would never work. And they would, like, I would tell them, okay, hold back, and you would see 40 people in a line. It was fantastic. And so I, I, the reason why I could do that is because I had a proven record. I'm, I'm bragging right now. But any, <laughs> any Alstrak Valley I got into, I could win between 30 to 45 minutes. And, and you know, we were all noobs back then. It was a strategy that worked, and that was it. It was fantastic. People knew you, and they recognized you. That's why people loved WoW back then. And all of that is gone. That's the pity of it. But that was the what what made it magical for me, why I stuck around so much, why I was playing 16 or 18 hours a day, some days more. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I, um, yeah, a lot of the uh, people I play with, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm a WoW refugee. And I'm like, wow. Like, it's... And the... And, and the Pretty much, they'll, they'll echo the same sentiments you have, where it's just not the same anymore. And I'm like, the only difference I have is Final Fantasy XI, like growing with that game and then going to 14, where a lot of the community went there and then out of nowhere, squares, hey, we have a new expansion for it. And they we're like, it's the first new expansion in like a decade. Okay, we're going back to 11. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, I um. I, that, that I sucks, honestly feel, community. I feel streaming and content creation, mm -hmm. you know, in podcasts and stuff, it's at the wow vanilla point. It's at that magical point where people mm -hmm. do stupid things that in five to ten years we're not going to do. It's at that point where, yeah. where you can reach out to, a, to another streamer and they'll help. Where, you know, we go to Twitch content, which is go around meeting people and, and you can find out what people do. I, I met Sushi Dragon in the last TwitchCon that was in person. Mm -hmm. And I just came up and said, hey man, do you want to see the stuff I'm building? Like, that was it. This is not going to be true in, in three to five years, right? You're going to approach mm -hmm. these people and you'll have to go through an agent. You'll have to, to go through tiers. If, you know, everyone will know a lot more on what it takes to get up there. It's gonna change, and so I, I really enjoy having worked in this industry for for now what nearly three years now, because it's it's right now it's at that magical point, you know. And and like I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a, a secret. Okay. I hold a Discord. I host a Discord channel for developers that work with Nvidia. Oh. So wow. that's basically a lot of the companies that are in the ecosystem. So we have OBS, Streamlabs, XSplit, Twitch Studio. We have a bunch of people in there. And because mm -hmm. most of the day we're just talking about streaming, we invited some reviewers. So we have mm -hmm. some reviewers there. And it's kind of funny because you have everyone in the ecosystem, you know, the people that are developing the products, the people that are reviewing the products. We have some, some big streamers there. We're all chatting with each other. I love it. Like it's the best part of my job right now is that channel. I love the guys there. I love that we have an open community that we can discuss stuff. And I love that I can be, be straight with and when I have something that's shit, I can go and tell them this thing is not working. I need to wait. And when I have something that's great, I can go and tell them, guys, this thing is ready. Who wants to take it? Um, I'm I'm really thankful that it is where it is now. And and I fear, you know, something similar will happen with time, which is normal. Um, but I just want to tell people, if you want to start, we're still at that point where people, where it's cool, right? Where people help each other, where we do silly things, where we where we do it for the magic of it and not because it makes all the sense or because we're minimaxing something. 
I know it's really sad that I make my my business conclusions based on my wow life. It just it was a big part of me. I need to use it as a reference. <laughs> uh, it makes sense. And no, I, I see I see content creation and streaming going to that direction too. Um you know, in the the years that I've been a content creator, which is what, five years now, a lot of people I've seen start and blow up you know many of them that i know i even now like a lot of them i can't even i used to be able to just call or text or send a dm now it's their loopholes you got to go through just to to speak with them and i do think that is like you said in the next five or so years i could see that happening to uh, on a grander stage than what it is now because that's going to be the evolution of the industry and I, I, I do lament that because I, I'm going to miss, I guess you could say like the grassroots nature of the industry as it is now. Um, yeah, it's, that's going to be wild. <laughs> it, I don't know. I'm, I'm optimistic in the sense that there are some really big streamers that are ext- extremely approachable still that are yeah. the most humble and, and, I want to say normal. I, I don't. I don't mean that people are not normal, but you know, the most regular. I know what you mean. People that you can <laughs> that you can meet. Um, I've seen some big streamers win a two hundred and fifty thousand tournament and then go get burgers for dinner with the team. Again, and with us, with Nvidia was sponsoring the tournament, so we had flown them in and stuff. And like you mm-hmm. know, it's just won a quarter of a million. You know, you can go and treat yourself, and they're like, "No, oh, let's go to In and Out. We're in California. We want to have In and Out." <laughs> like it's it's refreshing it's especially you know some people are getting crazy contracts and to see how it doesn't get to their heads is really nice and yeah. and obviously their public image is another thing right like when you're a ninja or a shroud your your public image starts diverging from the real person but yeah i don't know i still think that shroud for example comes across as a very nice dude and he's a very nice dude so yeah definitely uh, speaking of, um, you know, working with like, what has been your experience thus far? Like, I don't know, obviously positive, but like, oh, I get, okay, let me restructure that question. Um, what is it like working with big streamers and content creators? Like how, how is that for you? Like, give us a example of how that's, that typically would go like, if you can. Uh, personally, it was a bit of a challenge for me at the beginning, because mm-hmm. the bigger they get, uh, one, I haven't I haven't interacted directly with that many. I'll say this: it could be just the people I have interacted with, mm-hmm. but I felt they had a natural distrust for business people at large corporations, which is perfectly normal. That mm-hmm. made my job a bit difficult, because until you show that you're for real and that you're trying to help or that you get what they're doing there wasn't any real interaction. So that was the first thing I noticed that it happened with a lot of them. Then when it happens, there are two types of engagements usually. You have the, I need to fix X, fix X, and then they're very vocal about it and they come to you and and if you can fix it, then the relationship spurs and it's great. And then you have some which are more maybe technically oriented that want to help you develop stuff and they want to interact with you, etc. 
Um, mm-hmm. For the most part, once I've gotten past the initial barrier of are you for real or not, it's been mostly positive. People treating you very nicely, being genuine about what they do, wanting to to try new things and, and build new things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had some bad experiences when people are not sure where you're coming from, if you're trying to sell them something. If The setting is also important. Like When you meet people in person, it's because they're not streaming, so it could be a convention and stuff. They're tired. In a convention, yeah. they get approached by a gazillion people. I've, I've done a lot of conventions at work, and, and we do four to six-hour shifts. My first convention, I don't know why, but I forgot to do my shift, so I just stayed there the whole day. I, want, I thought I was going to die that night. I had a horrible headache, so I can only imagine what they go through with so many people coming to them. So that's, that's the only thing in, in working with them. You need to know how to approach them. You need to respect their free time or downtime, and you need to show what you're doing and, and not just be a fanboy. Yeah. Because, because I mean, that happens, right? You, you go in front of a shroud and you're basically like, mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, um, I, yeah, I can relate to that. I, um, let's see, last year at E3, uh, was when I got to meet, um, who did I meet? I met, met Xavier Woods. So I got to meet him and I also got to meet, uh, Kenny Omega and I got to meet, uh, Harris Heller, you know, before nice. I became friends with, with Harris Heller and it was, uh, Harris is awesome. He I love is. Harris. Yeah. He's, it's, it's upsetting it's to talk to him too. in person. Yeah. It's upsetting <laughs> to talk to him because he's very tall and very handsome. And so every time I'm talking, I'm like, Oh my God, he looks like a God, but, uh, he, he's, he's, he's the sweetest guy. Yeah, like because uh, I we we met him, my wife and I we met him. Uh, I want to say day two of E three last year, and um, he's super nice, super down to earth, very approachable. I could tell he was tired because he, you know, he was doing a lot of yeah. filming all throughout, yeah. a lot of interviews and stuff like that. And yeah, like he's super, super, super approachable. And then there were other people that I met. You know, Xavier Woods was super approachable. Got to play some games with him and Kenny Omega and many other people. Um, and then, you know, I, I've had instances of running into some, you know, streamers and creators that were not as approachable. Um, you know, but I can understand. Like you said, it's the being tired and constantly being approached and be draining. It can be very draining. Yeah, which, by the way, I would say this also for fans. If anyone goes to one of these conventions and you approach your your hero, first, it's never good to meet your heroes. They never stand, you know, they're never as good as you imagine. <laughs> yeah. But don't take it into account for them. It's it's tough to do one of these things and they can't always be super nice. Yeah, very true. So I have a couple more questions. Uh, you know, don't want to take up too much of your time, but... I uh, know, go wonder- for it. We're having fun. Sure. Uh, Okay, I want to bring okay. a beer. <laughs> yeah, go ahead if you want to. If you want, no, no, no I'm, I'm kidding. Um, so, so one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, what is your idea? Oh, oh, not your idea. What is your opinion on the current push for cloud gaming? Because I feel like, you know, honestly, for me, when I used to work at Microsoft, uh, this see, 2011, 2012, 2011, and further back, I remember there's always talks of that happening but you know we never really had anything that was capable of doing that we didn't have the infrastructure for that to be as widespread as it is now like now we've got you know nvidia geforce now we've got uh 
uh, with Xbox Game Pass, where you can do, well, if you have Android, you can play directly on your device through streaming, or you have your uh, iPhone, I believe you have to use the app, but you have to connect it to your Xbox. But we've got Google Stadia. Like, we're seeing a lot of companies push cloud gaming. And I'm seeing that gamers now are more positively receptive to cloud gaming. Minus the little incident with Stadia a couple weeks ago. But (laughs) um, people are more receptive to it now than, say, two, three, four years ago. Where do you see this going? I know it's a long question, but like, where do you see cloud cloud gaming going in the long run? So uh, let me preface this by saying that this is my personal opinion. Um, Obviously, I work for NVIDIA, who has a solution in the area, but this is just my thinking. Um, When I look at a new industry, this is how I try to analyze it. Um, First, current trends don't tell you much. Most industries go through the hockey stick, right? They go through the initial hype, the prototype, validation of prototype. And then when you have to expand it, it goes down. It goes to the valley of forgiveness, and then it, it starts ramping up quickly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the best example I have is 3D glasses for TV, right? 3D TVs oh, were, yeah. we were at a point where everyone thought every single TV was going to be a 3D TV. And yeah. it faded. And it just disappeared overnight. One Christmas to the next, there were no TVs with it. And so it's it's always tricky. And for example, VR went through that, right? VR went through the mm-hmm. disappearing phase and then Alex hit, right? Half-Life Alex. And, and suddenly it's at the point where you're like, wait, are we ready now to ramp up the real VR? So so you, the initial trend doesn't matter that much. You need to understand what was fueling the initial trend. Mm-hmm. The second thing is when you look into industries, think if it's a new industry or not. Gaming, the, the problem with online gaming is that it resembles too much online video. And we know, we know what happened with online video and Netflix. Netflix was able to happen because no one saw it coming. Like I worked at Cisco at the time where we had Scientific Atlanta, a company they had acquired that did technology in, in this area, right? And and mm-hmm. they had very clear numbers. Like, guys, these guys are coming and they're going to eat you alive. But a lot of content providers didn't see it coming. They signed deals with them. They let them have content. And Netflix was very, very smart that they locked content in 2012, 2014. So they haven't really had to create their own shows until later. Uh, and and even then, they knew content was key, so they started creating um, the, the their shows pretty early. Um, what's happened in online gaming, people are being very defensive. We saw it with GeForce now, where we had a lot of producers' games there that suddenly said, oh, no, we don't want this thing here. And then two months later, they came back to GeForce now once they understood that our model is to put all of the money for the game into the developers' hands. And that's when they said, oh, okay, this is great. But that took some time because everyone is scared that this will happen to them, right? So so let's summarize. So the trend, don't trust it too much. Is it the new mm-hmm. industry? Not really. People have memory, and so that plays a role into it. Then you should analyze what would make a user adopt it or not. Would a user, if a user adopts cloud gaming, the benefit is that you no longer need a PC. Right. Let's mm-hmm. be honest. What it's really replacing right now in its current form, in GeForce Now, for example, is replacing a PC. Would people really give up a PC? You still need a laptop or a desktop, right? So who's going to transition to it? 
it's going to tra- someone that was on the edge, someone that was the only reason why I'm buying PU is to game. And I'm not gaming that much to own it. So it may transform the Verge players, but the people that are playing more, they already have the GPU, they have their experience. It's the same thing as a content creator buying a good microphone. I can make whatever filter you guys want with NVIDIA Broadcast. But if it's your hobby, if you're doing podcasts, you're going to buy yourself the nice microphone. Why? It's your hobby. You, yeah. you pass the money, whatever you want. My, my goal with NVIDIA Broadcast is that you don't have to. You will decide when you're ready to buy it. You won't be forced to do it. But, you know, given the, the opportunity to buy it, you invest in what you love. So you're going to buy yourself that microphone. So this is similar, right? Cloud gaming, mm-hmm. for someone that loves gaming on PC, I think they'll stay with gaming. For someone that's on the verge, they may switch. What they actually think that will happen is that this industry is going to be massive on console. The console experience is a simple experience where you turn the thing on and it works and you forget about it. Mm-hmm. That is literally the model for cloud gaming. I would be surprised if we see a PS6 or the next Xbox. I, I would honestly be surprised. I think the next generation of consoles is just going to be an uplink to the cloud. And you're just going to be able to access the game from the cloud. So uh, I do think it's going to happen. I think we still have this generation while it's still growing. I, I think the next generation of consoles, which they are in six-year cycles, doesn't happen. I, I think it goes mm-hmm. to the cloud directly. If you see who are the people investing big money into it, PlayStation and, and Xbox, because I think it's obvious for them that their platforms move to it. Um, what is the advantage of playing on a PC that I can get 10 milliseconds of latency if we manage to optimize everything? 20 milliseconds likely, end-to-end latency. The feeling is gorgeous. If you're trying to play anything that needs reaction time, it's amazing. In a console, mm-hmm. your reaction time is actually 80 to 100 milliseconds because you have the controller on Bluetooth that adds some latency. You have the consoles, which are not as fast. They're not they're running at about 60 FPS now. I think that the new ones have touted some modes that may go higher. But right now, they're still at 60 FPS. And then you have the infra going to TV. <laughs> yeah. And then TV is not being super responsive either. So I'm under NDA, so I can't say any more. But <laughs> <laughs> So you know more. But, but you see my point. A, a, a lot yeah. of the advantages that you have on PC, consoles don't have as clear. And the cloud is going to improve a lot. We're going to start seeing 60 millisecond responses. So I mm-hmm. honestly think it's going to end up being the majority of console gamers move to to the cloud in that time frame. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of parts of the world have mobile gaming because people only have one device, right? You go to China, for example, a lot of tier three, tier four, tier five cities have mobile phones because people own one device. Uh, in mm-hmm. tier one and tier two, they own everything. <laughs> you should see the market. Every time I go to China, it's like seeing the future. It's amazing. Wow. Um, <laughs> it, you, you you wouldn't believe it. Like I'll give you one stat. I think it's thirty percent okay. of of retail in the U.S. happens online. In China, it's seventy. Like it's they just went ahead what? of the curve. They they bypassed it. Well, it's a project I really like when I was back at CISO. It's people think mm-hmm. that the digital divide separates worlds. Technology has a chance to unify them. Nigeria had a problem when they tried to lay down their network infrastructure, where they mm-hmm. realized that if they had to go through all of the all the steps that modern societies had gone, you had to put copper fiber, then move to DSL, ADSL first, then DSL, then DSL2, 
then Fiverr, that's a shit ton of money. But instead of doing that, you can deploy 4G. And you bypass the whole thing. You don't need to lay copper, which is very expensive. You need to open up roads, et cetera. You just put 4G nodes. And, and obviously, Nigeria is not yet there. They have to improve their infrastructure a lot. But it's one of the ways you bypass it. China is doing something similar. They're finding ways to just bypass the and then just go to the end of the step. They're mobile first, for example. They're mobile first because people mm-hmm. buy one device, right? In a lot of these cities, and the device needs to do everything. But their infrastructure is mobile. You can pay with mobile, you can order with mobile, everything is mobile first. So in fact, if you go to one of the conventions in, in China, I was at Gamescom, not Gamescom, what's at China Joy in in when was this 2019? And the mm-hmm. esports stages that you would normally see in a TwitchCon where you see computers, it's phones. So you just see five dudes on their phones. Oh. So it's 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 surprising. It, it shocks you a bit. It's like they're on their phone. Like it doesn't look very competitive you know, with their foods up and stuff. Like, it doesn't it doesn't look that competitive. But um, but but they they do it right. So it's it's a bit of of the biggest opportunity for cloud gaming. In a world that's only mobile, where people haven't experienced anything beyond that, you can introduce to those people games like Red Dead Redemption, Cyberpunk, mm-hmm. Assassin's Creed, the new one about Valhalla. I'm really looking forward to that one. You can oh, introduce them experiences. You've seen it? Nice. I, I'm, I, I have it. I, I'm, my review should be up this week, but... Oh, so, yeah. We used to get those in the office for testing and, and they tested right next to where I sit. So I would be able to just go in as one of the testers they use. And now that we're working at home, I don't have the mm-hmm. clearance so they don't, I don't get to try them. But they used mm-hmm. to help with testing. But but you, you know what I mean then? That kind mm-hmm. of experience on a phone, you, you don't have it. Or on a Chromebook, on, on a on a bad laptop, you don't have it. To be able to give people that advantage, that, that, that experience, it's going to be massive. Now, will it be the prevailing gaming on phones? Absolutely not. And this is what people are not getting right. Phone gaming is what it is because of the controls that you have available, where you do it, and how long the sessions are. You cannot port a PC game or console game into a phone and just because it works, think that people will like it. They don't use it the same way. So this this was like a really long answer. Sorry for that. No, 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 but, no. Take your time. We, I, we enjoy this. We enjoy this. <laughs> so my thinking is that cloud gaming is sitting right on top of the console space. It sits a bit on top of the mobile space, which is so large that it will be mm-hmm. relevant because of that, but it by no means replaces mobile gaming. And I think PC gaming, it touches less than people assume. It probably touches more than NVIDIA than NVIDIA things, right? We maybe should be more <laughs> careful with it and keep investing in GeForce Now to make it great, which which honestly we are. Like GeForce Now has a bunch of cool features coming. But I might, and this is just my thinking, but my thinking is that it really sits on top of consoles. And, mm-hmm. and they need to pay a lot of attention, which I think they are, but they need to pay a lot of attention to it because of it. I've noticed... Which is interesting when I talk to, uh, I hate saying Nintendo gamers because Nintendo primary gamers, uh, a lot of games have been coming to the switch lately, such as, uh, control and upcoming Hitman three and many other titles that are, I would say there's severe technical limitations of trying to get that natively working 
on the Switch architecture, they're coming in cloud versions. And when I've talked to a lot of Nintendo gamers, their complaints because they're like, oh, I, I you know, I want to physically own it. How come they can't optimize it to work on the Switch? And I'm thinking they're giving you the full experience without having to downgrade it because of the hardware. Like I've tried uh control on the Switch, the cloud version. I've tried um the upcoming Hitman 3, which Damn it, I'll have to edit that out because I'm under <laughs> NDA. I will edit that out. Anyway, um, I, I've tried those and um or currently still playing them. And minus slight latency, it's the full console experience. And I think Nintendo's seen that because people keep saying, oh, Nintendo needs to make a Switch Pro, they need to make a 4K machine. Nintendo I feel like they see the importance of cloud gaming, just like the other companies do. And they're just more in a position of, hey, uh, we need to, out of necessity, to utilize it than, say, Xbox or, or PlayStation. But, I, yeah. I, I, I think Nintendo is the one console that can justify being still a console where you need to buy something expensive because you can use it on the go, and then you will need the, the Nintendo games for it. Mm-hmm. But for them putting cloud gaming on it and letting people access all of cloud gaming with it when they're at home is surreal because you get yeah. everything in one device. When you're at home, you plug it to your TV and you have access to your super fun Nintendo games, but you also have access to the super high quality PC games. On the go, you can still play your Nintendo games. And if you're in a place where you can be you know, with a good connection sitting, I mean, ideally in planes. My, my dream is to get this in planes. When I fly, I want to have the Switch and just be able mm-hmm. to pull up a cyberpunk and, and just make progress through it. Um, so Nintendo is very well positioned if you think of it, because they yeah. do bring something to the table that the others don't give you. Yep, they really do. Okay, so since, since we're on that topic, controversial question. You ready? Go Console wars. Is that really a thing? Because when I talk to people in the industry that I know that work at Sony, Nintendo, Microsoft, they're like, we haven't had a console war since Sega Genesis uh, versus Super Nintendo. (laughs) So, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? So, from, if you make the business analysis, the the console war makes sense in a world where you can truly lock the experiences out. Why? Because Mm. if your friends are playing Fortnite on PlayStation, and you want to play Fortnite with your friends, then you're forced to buy a PlayStation. So I get the business argument of trying to lock them down, right? Now, at the same time, I get the, the users. You know, I get myself <laughs> trying to play with my friends anywhere. Um, games for a long time have been trying to, to break that as they could because if three of your friends are playing Fortnite on PlayStation and you're on Xbox, you may not mm-hmm. buy the game because you can't play with them. Well, in this case, the game is free, but well, you know what I mean. You may not use yeah. the game because you can't play with them. So what's the point of playing alone? So game developers are the opposite. They actually want their games to be able to hit the biggest ecosystem possible, especially if they have microtransactions, which are a whole different topic. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> console Wars, in, uh, again, not an NVIDIA opinion, my personal opinion, Console Wars have been reduced to exclusives. For the most part, most games are going to achieve interoperability. 
most gamers just demand it. You know, we've we've managed to get enough mass of games where they have it, where if your game doesn't have it, people will complain. And if platforms try to lock it, people will complain. So I think that that was good for the for the gamers. It's has a challenge for the for the console makers, but it's good for for gamers because it allows them to truly choose where they want to be, the one that they enjoy the most, and still have access to their friends. So uh, I think at this moment, PlayStation Five, Xbox, I think they're two terrific machines. I think you end up choosing it based on the either the one you prefer for the interface and the experience, or you choose it based on the exclusives. Um, I know Xbox does a, does have a differentiation with their Game Pass, though, so that's true. They have that. Um, and then I would argue you have PC where all of this is is null because we have better graphics, faster response times, <laughs> lower latency, and we have yeah. a much better experience. Yeah, very true. It, it's something since in the last, I want to say like four, four and a half years since I've, like I, I play console. Like I am still a console gamer in the sense of, I get the most review codes for console, but you know, when I get to use my 2080 TI, I'm over here. Like I don't get this experience. on console. <laughs> I love it. Um, so it's like a lot of things. Console gamers are now, it, it's, I guess you could say that's, that's kind of like the comparison between like features the iPhone gets now that Android has had for like ever. So, like, when it comes to, like, a lot of features that console gamers are getting, I'm like, hey, on PC, we've had that for a long time. Like, the idea of paying for the ability to play games online is still something, like, I, I know my PC gamer friends are like, I don't understand why you're paying for this service and that service just to play this game online. I'm like, for me, being console gamer first, I was like, oh, I'm, that's the norm. But then going over to PC, I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, you have a point. <laughs> yeah, it's but, um, that's the challenge with closed ecosystems, right? When you get when yeah. people lock you down into an ecosystem, like you know, you're in one console, that's your platform. They can apply some of those policies, which are tricky. And I think their biggest grasp on it was was the the game independence, right? The siloing of games. When that went yeah. down. On the, I don't know how long they can sustain those kind of of features. I I, I yeah. get that you have to pay for servers and such. But on the PC side, you don't have to, so it's kind of then hard to explain it. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of uh, PC gaming, so within the last two and a half years, we saw the jump from the ten series cards to the twenty series cards, and now. But this year we've got the 30 series cards, you know, from, from your perspective with the big, the jumps from each series, what would you say are some of the, the best benefits that the consumer would get from to each one? Like for me, the reason I want 30 series card is I don't have to have the need for doing a dual PC setup. I can literally have all the power to do everything from one. I just can't find one. <laughs> Hawaii. Okay. Before we even dive into that, Hawaii, here's a tidbit of information about living out here in Hawaii. I love it. We've got the beach. I've got Waikiki Beach. I'm not able to look at it from my, my window here. As far as trying to buy tech, all we have here is Best Buy. We only have two on the island. 
They barely carry anything. Which sucks. Uh, if you're trying to order stuff, Amazon and a lot of other carriers, I think because of shipping laws here in Hawaii, that's a lot of things you really can't get. get. So like me trying to get a new PSU with that, <laughs> put it in my card in Amazon. It's like, we can't ship that to Hawaii. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah. um i'll say on that a lot of people have been have been even upset about the the supply many many reports have published that the supply wasn't short for these cards the demand was absurd like we we took down websites of seasoned retailers right like a new egg went down they they saw 3x the black friday traffic Like, like it was absurd um a lot of it, I don't know what part of it, honestly, but you know, there was some part which was bots that, you know, uh, understandably people got upset. The bots hit everyone. Mm-hmm. Like they hit our store, yeah. they hit all of the, the the industry stores, which you know, like th- these people know what they're doing. Their ma- main business is selling through retail. Um, so mm-hmm. it's been upsetting. I-, I can tell you, a ton of people internally are trying to solve it. Are trying. I mean, the solution is easy, right? Produce more work on the logistics and deliver them. We still live in a world with COVID, so logistics aren't easy. But I yeah. know they have solutions coming soon. So that's the good thing is people, hopefully, I mean, I think Jensen officially said that we expect to have it until the end of December. I know a lot of people are trying to make it easier, um, faster, but you know, it's at least um, for ideally Christmas, we, we can um, solve the problem. But it's it's been tough also on internal people because... A lot of people worked on the launch. Like we, we worked our ass off. I, mm-hmm. my team, the all the the team working on the broadcast uh, improvements in the thirty series. We, I can't tell you the crunch we did, because because we were all really excited about it, and half of the team is on vacation now. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we, we did a massive crunch to get to it, and um, it was a bit sad to see the product reviews kind of shadowed by the availability problems because then people understandably get upset but a ton of people that have nothing to do with with manufacturing logistics or anything um see the name of their product being dragged down or um, you know affected and yeah and I, I get it like as a consumer our strength as consumers is complaining and companies do react to complaints so that it's it's the right thing to do but there is that line mm-hmm. there of you know this happened also um not long ago with when Cyberpunk changed their date, where one of the developers had to come out and say, guys, like, I get it that you're excited, but like, like you know, life threats make no sense here. Like, that's a step too far. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's the one thing I'll say is, you know, we have to keep some logic in the world um, around this. Um, but um, your, your, your question, sorry, was why people should switch from the 10 series and the 20 series, right? Well, well the... the, the prof- Yes, that and then like the, I guess the the jumps when we went from t- ten series to twenty, and then twenty to thirty, like how the performance jumps have been huge. Like I, I've seen uh, my friend Epos Vox and I've seen Harris talk about it because they have him, and I'm like, man, that's huge. That's a huge performance jump. But in your opinion, yeah, yeah. So, so first, the 10 series was a terrific uh, line. It, it just 
came out very well. Within the 10 series, the 1080 Ti was absurd. I, I, I used to cover esports, so a lot of analysis I would do is just raw performance of GPUs. And if you plot them, the cards have a natural, a natural line, then you have the 1080, mm -hmm. and then the line continues. The, the 1080 Ti is an anomaly in, in performance. It just came out really, really well. And, mm -hmm. and so many times people don't have a 1080 Ti, but they read about the change of 1080 Ti to the 20 or 30 series, and they are like, oh, it's not worth it. Don't make the assumption because that's that GPU in particular. Next, um, going from non-RTX architecture to RTX, uh, RTX gives you some things that are kind of special. And, and if, you, if you don't know about them, we should cover them, right? Mm -hmm. Mainly, you get access to ray tracing and to AI acceleration. Now, why should anyone care? So you care about ray tracing because the next level of, of gaming, the next level of realistic games is going to be done thanks to changes in lighting. If you treat lighting in certain ways, you can make the scene hyper-real. The, the best example is the, the Avenger. The Avenger movies were not doable 20 years ago. And the one innovation that they have that's different is they all use ray tracing technology. It mm -hmm. looks hyper-real. The Iron Man suit has all the normal reflections you would expect from, from metal. And so it looks realistic. That's what, what we're going to be able to do. Now, obviously, not all games apply ray tracing the same way. And not all gamers mm. care about ray tracing. If you're just a competitive gamer or streamer that you know that you don't play story games, you're just playing League of Legends or something like that, then you don't need ray tracing. That's the reality. But the other thing that we can do mm -hmm. is AI. And AI is kind of special because AI allows us to do two things. One, for gaming, we can run DLSS. DLSS means that we run the game with the current graphic settings that you have, with the current fidelity that you have, we can run it at a lower resolution and upscale to that resolution. What that hap what happened, what it happens to do is we can actually do it faster if we do it this way than if we render the real image. And the quality, you can mm -hmm. check reviews. With DLSS 2.0, it's imperceptible. In fact, some people think it looks better with AI. So wow. what we're able to do is increase um, uh, frame rates. And now that's interesting because it doesn't matter if you like ray tracing or not. Everyone wants more FPS. So suddenly we can, uh, and I'll be honest, at 1080p, the bump is not really that obvious because at 1080p, we're still at a small resolution. So the issue is when you try to scale up to 4K. Many, many people are going to start buying 1440p panels. The, the growth of those panels, it, it's hitting the hockey stick, right? It's starting to escalate very quickly. I, I just switched to a 1440p panel last year, 144 FPS. It's, it, to me, it's the sweet spot, right? You get a nice resolution. Mm -hmm. You get still a very fast monitor. They're amazing. And they're very cheap now. They're becoming affordable. <laughs> so yeah. DLSS, what it basically does is that you can play at 1440p with your 1080p frame rate. So you get to keep the best of both worlds. So I... I don't know. I, I, I use it a lot because I like playing in that higher resolution and I like keeping my responsiveness for, for competitive games. And then the other thing we have is we, we've got the Tensor cores there, right? So what we can do is accelerate other stuff, which is where NVIDIA Broadcast, the product I do, comes in. That's where we thought, mm -hmm. what else could we do with AI? And with NVIDIA Broadcast, we can do this blur effect. On the back, I, I have a regular Logitech webcam and I can do this fake bouquet effect. I can cancel noise. I don't know if if it came through, but a leaf blower from my neighbor 
like 30 minutes when we started the podcast. Yep. It was there the whole yep. time. So didn't hopefully it didn't come through. And, and so <laughs> we start adding value to things that people never thought of as like, you know, you need a video card to do audio. But that's that's mm -hmm. what AI is going to allow us to do, right? So that's that's the advantages of this architecture. And we're at the beginning of it. We're going to be able to do many more things. So going from the 10 series to the 20 or the 30 unlocks all of that. In terms of performance, 10 to 20 is not bad. It, people gave it a lot of, of shade. It's actually a 35 to 40% jump in class to class, 1060 to 2060. It's, it's a mm -hmm. decent jump. It's, it's what we only see in generations. Now, the problem is that the 30 series came along and we got close to a 2x, or I think we got more or less on a 2x scale from the previous generation, which is nuts. You basically saw mm -hmm. a 3070 for $500 match a 2080 Ti. It was $1,000. So that's the problem. It's the 30 series was so good, it kind of eclipses the 20 series. So mm -hmm. it's from, from, the 10, from the 20 series, it makes sense to go up. And from the 10 series, it's just a no-brainer. So you get all of the, of the tech that we discussed, right? You get ray tracing, you get DLSS, you get AI for other stuff. And on top of it, you get crazy frame rate improvements. Now, mm -hmm. the one thing that I'm very passionate about that you do get in any case is the encoder. So on the 20 series, we put a ton of time and effort into developing the next generation of our encoder, MBank 7.0. And 7.0 was, was nuts. It added a couple of settings that you can only get when you're doing X264 medium or slow. So really mm -hmm. advanced settings. And thanks to them, the quality just skyrocketed, especially if you have a limited uh, bitrate. So before, MVENC used to be something that until you had very high bitrates you couldn't really use. With Turing, it actually behaves better than X264 at low bitrates. If you're mm -hmm. anyone that's trying to record your screen, you know, just doing local recordings, or stream, these cards are a godsend. You can even just put a 1650 Super, which is the first card that has the, the new MBank, and get access to mm -hmm. it. So a lot of streamers we work with, we tell them, just plug a 1650 on the second computer. It doesn't even have to be a high-end GPU. Put 2060 if you want the NVIDIA broadcast uh, settings, right? The noise removal and stuff, but if not, the 1650 Super does it. And you get X264 medium level quality which sure, you could do slow. Honestly, it's really hard to see the difference. And you have one major advantage. With MVENC, it scales up to 4K. So X264 starts having a really hard time when you go up in resolution. MVENC mm -hmm. does it natively. You can do 4K60, you can do 4K120 if you want it. You can also do high refresh rate replays. So you can record 1080p at 240 FPS or 360 FPS if you lower the settings. And mm -hmm. you can then replay any scene in slow motion. You can do um, HDR recording. You can do 8K recordings now. The, the flexibility it gives you, it's nuts. So that's wow. the one thing I tell streamers is for streaming, especially for a second PC, like you don't have to spend money on a $1,000 CPU. It will do it for you. A lot of streamers, we tell them, if you're moving to get a second PC, slap a 1650 Super on, the, on your old PC and just get the, a new gaming PC, which is a great time now because we have the new AMD CPUs too. And so mm -hmm. the cards were great for that. And, and we're working on a lot of improvements for that. So one of the things we have coming, uh, th this is a bit of a, a pre-release announcement, which I shouldn't make, but I think they'll be fine. Um, we, <laughs> we can edit we, it out. <laughs> no, we, we put an article on it. It's, it's 
if you if you are interested in the topic, you would have seen it. Uh, you guys may know about a company called NewTek, uh, which was acquired mm-hmm. by BizRT. They do professional gear for professional studios. They have a product called NDI. NDI is a protocol that allows you to take frames from your PC and transfer them to another PC with no capture card. It does it through your local internet. We've been working with them to encode it on MBank. So on your main rig, you just encode it with MBank. It goes to your second rig, and then you can composite and encode out. You don't need a capture card. You get top quality, and the setup is, it basically comes for free. So now you don't need an expensive CPU on your second PC. You don't even need a capture card. So we're starting to do some crazy stuff with these <laughs> setups, which I really like. And you know, as, as you may know, we have 360 hertz monitors coming now for esports aficionados. So we're going to be able to start seeing people play at 360 hertz and just transfer over the internet the 360 hertz to a second capture card, a virtual capture card that can record the 360 hertz. So you're going to be able to to do a bunch of new stuff with with these setups. So I don't know. We're, we're very excited about what's coming. Man. Whew, yeah, I, I've been... Uh, so I just got a new monitor uh, as of yesterday. Dell sent me out their 32-inch. Um, this is 165 hertz, 1440p uh, with Ooh. HDR. So they, they sent nice. that yesterday, which is crazy because like I was, I was like, man... I need a new gaming computer. Oh, not a computer, monitor. And so they, I guess they knew, like, because I had made a tweet about how my main my main monitor, which is the Samsung Ultra Wide 49 inch, has been on a fritz. I've had this for two years, and it now has this thing where if I put my computer to sleep, when I wake, it takes about 15, 20 minutes for it to, it, it looks like someone stepped on the screen. So I don't know what's going on with it. Samsung, I guess they attempted to repair it. Went back to me. Same issue. So 15, 20 minutes. Then it it clears up. It's fine. So I'm oh, like, wow. I don't know how much longer I, I'm going to have this computer, not computer, monitor working. So then I made a tweet. You know, Dell reached out to me. And then they sent me this monitor, which is crazy because... A week prior to that, HP sent me their Omen 27-inch. Uh, was it the HP oh, nice Omen 27i? So I've got both, which ultimately I think are going to replace this. But with this, this Dell monitor, I'm like, man, this is the sweet spot. Because a lot of people, mainly console gamers, are like, oh, 4K gaming. I'm like, that's cool. 1440p is where it's at. I'm perfectly fine with 1440p. It's a higher than 60 rig. 60 uh refresh rate that's perfectly fine for me you know four milliseconds or one millisecond i'm good with that the, these 300 hertz monitors i was looking at those today and i'm salivating because i'm like that's gonna be really nice but that makes me wonder okay so you know 8k is the the next echelon when it comes to monitors and tv in your opinion, do you think we're how close do you think we are to like true 8K gaming? I feel like we're about four to five years off from that being like so. so I mean, 1390 actually does 
is a very deep up at, at 8K. So you, you would be surprised. We put gamers through it and, and we blew their minds. Um, the, the challenge with 8K is it only makes sense for TVs. There are some 8K monitors, but they're really studio monitors. They're reference monitors for, for video editing. So people are not really mm -hmm. realistically going to have 8K monitors um, in their PC. You will have it for a TV. 8K also helps once you have a certain size, right? It's, it helps keep the quality when you reach levels of TV. And so I think it's going to be more realistic for TVs. The problem there is how many gamers play with their PC on the TV, right? Because the consoles are not going to get to 8K soon, or I don't expect to get to 8K yeah. soon. And so I think yeah. because you don't have a lot of people, you won't see a lot of companies optimizing for it. So right now, the 1390 runs those games well at 8K. What does it need to be better? It needs a bit of optimization. Right? You, the thing is, if you have limited resources for a game, would you delay a game to optimize it for 8K when not that many users do it? Not really. Do I think So I guess yeah. your question is, if you think about it is, when will 8K TVs be a significant portion of the install base? Yeah. And that's, yeah, it's that's, not really, that's... it's not really my realm, right? I don't really know TV adoption that well. I don't think it happens soon because there there is no content. It's going to be a catch-22. Yeah. There won't be content because there are not in 8K screens. There won't be enough 8K streams because there is no content. Now, YouTube YouTube is converting a lot of content to... It's accepting content in 8K. They're converting it to AV1, so it's easier to transmit. A lot of the groundwork is being done to make it easier. Mm -hmm. But I honestly have no sense when it happens. In, in the timeframes I manage for my products, I don't see it happening soon. Um, mm -hmm. It's something that if, for example, I'll turn it around. Okay. When do you want to be able to do 8K content? Because then I'll help you do it. <laughs> Not anytime soon. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something I'm doing. You, for those of you that don't know it, I'm speaking to the audience now. For the, mm -hmm. No, but for, for people that don't know it, in GTC which is our technology conference. It happened on October 5th. I launched, or we launched, an SDK that allows developers to integrate one AI-accelerated feature of the ones I was talking about into their mm -hmm. programs. It's called Super Resolution. It does two very cool things. First, you know when you record a video and it has artifacts, like you're gaming and, and you streamed it and they had like an error? Mm -hmm. So we have an AI network that can take that out in post. So, Ooh. you know, you record it, it didn't look as good. It can impose, go and clean the image. And then what happens is, usually when that happens, also the image doesn't have that much definition. So mm -hmm. we, it's also a, a network that can do super resolution with AI, which means that it reads the image and it intends to create a new pixel, but it does it with artificial intelligence. So the, the example I always show is, if you have a grid, imagine like three lines, a sharper or you know a regular method, if you try to create a pixel, it would just stretch the image and fill it in. Mm -hmm. AI will actually read that there is three lines and create a fourth. Okay. Because it tries to understand what the image is, right? So we have a network that we've already released that does both. So people can take a 720p video that they've done that's not 
very good quality because you had to stream it at three megabits per second. That was your bit rate. It can mm-hmm. clean it and it can take it up to eight, uh, 1080p. And it can look like, like an 8K bitrate video, just with AI. The first thing that someone asked oh. me was, can you do this for 4K so I can do content in 8K? And what they told me is, I want to create content in 8K, but I don't have an 8K camera. And they're very expensive. So you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. So yeah. they told me, could we take my 4K camera, which has a good lens, and could you guys help me take it to 8K so now I can get gigs where they mm-hmm. they demand an 8K videographer? And I'm not far from doing it. So we're working <laughs> hard at it and we're looking for ways in which we can enable it. That, for example, I am I am passionate about, but that that's not exactly what you're asking because that 8K content is for professionals. Usually that content then gets cut down. And usually mm-hmm. what happens is you record 8K because that way you can reframe. And that's really useful because imagine you took a shot in a movie scene and then you need to reframe. The only way to reframe is to reshoot it. Now that they can do 8K filming they and they only export 4K, they can take a section of the screen. And, and 8K is basically four times 4K, so it gives them a lot of room. So it has a mm-hmm. lot of value for them. So that's why we think being able to, to give them super resolution at, at 8K would be super cool, right? And, and mm-hmm. by the way, just an open call out. If anyone has any of those needs, we're very actively working with the community. So shoot me out a, a message to my Twitter and, and we'll talk. We'll see if we can do it. Okay. Okay. So I've got two questions for you remaining and then we can, you know, we, we can wrap it up. Uh, doesn't feel like it's been almost two hours. <laughs> I know. <crazy. laughs> but uh, one of my, my, um, my questions from my community, because I asked, you know, every time I do a show, I always uh, let my community know who I'm going to be interviewing. So one of the questions I had from uh, several content creators in my community, they were curious about what is the process if a content creator wanted to work like with you or with NVIDIA? Like what is the, are there requirements? Are there things that you field out? So uh, I get that asked a lot because I'm, I'm out there on Twitter and so a lot of people think I'm doing that. I, I actually only work on the product development side. So mm-hmm. I'm not really sure how that process works. I know at NVIDIA, we do work sometimes with creators, but we don't have an active creator program. Mm-hmm. So typically you have two types of companies. You have the ones that have programs in which they're online. You normally apply or send an email to the person that, that manages the program, and then you can sign up and they have some steps to, to go through the ranks and they have like tiers of influencers. Mm-hmm. At NVIDIA in particular, they, they do very few engagements that I know of and they do it one by one. So it's it's usually once you get a certain reach and you're in an area, you get to talk to one of our our influencer folks. It's it's very much by introduction and once you get to a level, I believe. Yeah. Um, I actually should ask because I'm getting enough. I'm I'm getting asked this enough where I should actually mm-hmm. know an answer I can give everyone. <laughs> but um, I'm afraid a lot of companies are in that spot where they they don't interact as much. At NVIDIA, one thing that happens is most of my budget is dedicated to engineering. We have yeah. very small marketing budgets. And, and that sucks when you try to get your word out there for new things. Like RTX Voice never had a single ad ever. Mm-hmm. I launched RTX Voice with no budget. So that meant I put it on a forum, on the NVIDIA forum. And I was just lucky that people covered it. And so people heard about it. 
If not, no one would have heard. So that, that tells you how much the money is being used to, for engineering and new products, right? Um, so, so that kind of sucks in that sense for people that want to do things with us. But um, one thing I do I do, do <laughs> is um, if, if you're a content creator and you want to cover some of this stuff and you're starting out, sometimes what I'm allowed to do is I'll check with PR, but they let me give people content before it's released so you can do a review video. So it's not the same as getting paid, which is honestly what, what people deserve. But, you know, getting free release um, stuff can sometimes help grow your channel. So at least it's a it's a plus. So if you're one of those that reviews cutting-edge technology and, and you're covering this space and you want to reach out to me, hit me up and we'll see if, if there is anything coming up they can help with. Okay. Definitely, definitely. And um, I guess one of the last questions I have for you is, uh, you know, Aside from NVIDIA, aside from NVIDIA broadcasts, what do you like to do for fun? You know, like, we, we know you like to play WoW, but, like, what do you like to do to unwind, you know, at the end of the day and just enjoy, or even on the weekends? Like, what, what is it you have a passion for that you love to do? Um, so right now I'm leveling characters in World of Warcraft, but other than that, <laughs> um, I... In the when I did the masters and I started doing that thing outside of the box, I developed a passion for hiking. I had never hiked in my life. As a matter of fact, my my granddad was was he lives in a small town there. Mm -hmm. That town is as poor as you can imagine. And when we were when I was growing up, um, we used to go hunting for food. Like not for, mm -hmm. not as a sport. Like it was what we were gonna eat. So you wanted to make a paella, and, and what went in the paella is what you caught. So that was the kind of, of um, grow up that I did. Then I, I got to Berkeley, and I saw all these people talking about you know, being vegan and not hunting. And kind of, I had to adjust to the thinking because my, my upbringing, my, when I was growing up, it was like, you want to get paella? We need to go try to get a rabbit. If not, there is nothing to put with the rice. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but. Other than that, I hadn't really spent time in nature. And I guess maybe it's the Bay Area, you know, you have Yosemite so close by and stuff, but I really started liking hiking. Um, small hikes, easy ones, but I, I really like that. The The other thing I do is um, I'm a bit of a geek for board games. So I really like mm -hmm. playing board games. This past weekend, we invited some friends over to play the Game of Thrones board game, which mm -hmm. is basically risk on asteroids. It's like a super complicated risk. <laughs> we played for seven hours and we didn't finish. So we, it got to a point where we said, we're going to put a time limit, a limit in 30 minutes, whoever's ahead wins. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's super fun. And, and you know, and we were drinking our wines and stuff. And it was an awesome afternoon. So I like doing that a lot. Okay. Well, I will say this. You know, this is open invitation. If you ever come to Hawaii, uh, especially Honolulu, you got a place to stay because I live... Nice. My my house is literally I have a five bedroom house. Like we're like I said, we're expanding on it too. So uh our house is right in the middle of the Diamond Head hike and the uh what's the other one? Uh Cocoa Head. Cocoa Head. So that one, which is funny because like uh, a lot of times like my my friends that are in the industry or the voice actors, they'll come out here and they'll stay with us and literally we would be like, okay, so you can go do a diamond head. That's like, oh, that's easy. That's fun. What's next? I'm like, well, you could do cocoa head. And they're like, oh, yeah, let's do that. I'm like, 
Well, here's the thing about doing Coco Head. Um, Coco Head starts off like this, and then it gradually curves until oh you get to a point where it's straight vertical. And it's scary. I'm it not takes doing that about, one. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll hike it with you. <laughs> get, when you get to the top of it, I swear to God, when you get to the top of it, it's the most beautiful view in all of Hawaii. Um, oh, wow. You get to see, you can see the entire island oh, wow. from there. It's such a beautiful sight. Then you have to realize you have to go down. The, the mountain so that that that's the other part trust me take care of you you won't die. <laughs> awesome <laughs> but we'll do it but yeah but yeah like seriously like anytime you come out here um if you want you got a place to stay and um i'm telling you the hikes are fun dude food i don't know if you're a foodie so where i live i'm literally within a minute of everything doesn't matter what type of ethnic food you want it's all here in my area. Nice. It's crazy. Yeah, no, we're this, we're Spanish. We value food too much. <laughs> so, so yeah, like everything is here. Uh, every time I go, let's see, because my wife and I we develop a, a love for Indian food. So when we want to get Indian cuisine. There's a place literally down the street, and every time we go there, the, okay, so uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi, the guy who created Final Fantasy, he lives two houses down from me. So every time we go there to that Indian cuisine place, he's there. True story. Blows my mind. It's like, oh, oh Mikhail's wow. son. I was like, Sakaguchi son, how are you? <laughs> it's crazy. So, yes, I think, you know, you, the offer's there. If you want. Hey, and so. we we haven't been to Hawaii, so it's a deal. <laughs> you know, we'll be there. All right, man. So that's uh, I actually have uh, I actually have a final question for you. Did you have fun? Yeah, yeah. This was awesome. Many, many thanks for having me, and I hope people enjoy it. Definitely, man. Definitely. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with uh, before we go? Um, no, I mean, we, we covered a lot of topics, so I, I hope that they were entertaining or of value to you. If you, anyone has any questions or, or a follow-up and you guys want to wanna ping, I guess either of us, we're both on Twitter, so we're, we're both available. But um, <laughs> I, I very actively respond to, to questions on, on broadcast, streaming. Uh, I also cover NVIDIA Studio, but I cover the, the um, professional, actually not professional, just content creative. Uh, laptops and desktops for NVIDIA. So if you guys have ever questions on that or NVIDIA broadcast, hit me up and we'll be happy to talk about it. Is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with before we go? Um, don't leave your camera on auto light when you're recording a show with changing light from sun to night because then the camera keeps flickering, uh, <laughs> which I realized too late and I was too lazy to fix, I guess. Uh, that was one. Uh, two... Uh, <laughs> You're you're fantastic. I love this show. You know, we've been chatting now several times, and and you're awesome. So, best of luck with the show. I really hope it it grows and it does well. And uh, as I mentioned before, if if anyone has any follow up questions, I'm available on Twitter. I'm I'm fairly active there, so I try to respond to everyone every day, and uh, just happy to chat with anyone. Okay, 
And with that being said, people, uh, you'll be able to catch this episode of the podcast on all major podcasting outlets from uh, if you're looking for it for audio versions, you'll be able to catch it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Pandora. And it's also just now we recently got reached out to by Amazon to have it on Amazon Music. So you can catch it there. Just look up the Casanova Podcast. And for video format, we're available on YouTube.com slash Mikel Casanova. So you'll be able to see this entire uh, recording there as well as on Twitch. We occasionally will do live streams on Twitch as well and re-upload podcasts there. So twitch.tv slash Mikhail Casanova. And with that being said, all the links from my guests uh, outlets as well as information for topics that we talked on will be available in the description below. So make sure you go check them out and make sure you go and follow her on over on Twitter. So I'll have all my information there. And with that being said, we are signing out. We hope you guys had a great one. And that being said, we'll see you. See you guys. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I hope it was informative, engaging, and you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure you go ahead and leave a rating and a review. It greatly helps out the podcast and helps the platforms that we're on. Go ahead and promote us more so that more people can check it out. And if you're wondering what all platforms we're on, aside from what you've listened to it on, we're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Pandora, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. And if you want to support the podcast, then we've got Patreon, so patreon.com slash Mikhail Casanova, which allows us to continue doing what we're doing. If you're looking for this in video format, we're also available on twitch.tv slash Mikhail Casanova, as well as youtube.com slash Mikhail Casanova. So with all that being said, I'll catch you on the next episode of Hawaii's number one podcast and the number one podcast in the Pacific, the Casanova Podcast. You have a great day, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye.